My name is have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Good day and welcome to Refugee Radio. I'm your host, Celine Yap. Um, and two weeks ago on the show, we interviewed a lovely Kurdish refugee named Sirvan, who spoke to us about the plight of the Kurdish people in the Middle East and what it was like to be a stateless person. Um, today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Haujin Aziz, a former University of Newcastle academic and now a central figure in the um, Kobani Reconstruction Board. Um, so welcome to the show, um, Haojing. Thank you so much, Celine. It's, a, it's absolutely lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking time out of your morning to <laughs> to get on the phone with us all the way from Sydney. Um, Thank so, you. <laughs> so um, before you talk to us about um, the Kurdish, uh, the Kobani Reconstruction Project, could you give us a little bit of a history behind um, the whole thing? Behind the whole Kobani Reconstruction Board? Sure. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so Kobani is a tiny little city in northern Syria, yeah. um, and in September 2014, uh, it was basically attacked by the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Um, the Islamic State came into prominence in 2014, and it was taking over a lot of land, both in Syria and then over across the border in Iraq as well. So one of the cities that they attacked and attempted to take over was Kobani City. Um, now, as a result of the conflict, which lasted between September 2014 until about January 2014, uh, the city of Kobani was destroyed completely. Um, but Kobani, you know, it really came into prominence because there was a lot of international attention on, on the resistance that occurred there, mainly because of the um, Kurdish protection, uh, people's protection, self-protection mm-hmm. units, which was led by the Yepaga, mm-hmm. and the women's self-protection units, which was led by the Yepaja. Mm-hmm. Um, so the international focus on, on these fighters who were basically members of the community who had picked up guns and were basically resisting um, and engaged in this incredible historical um, resistance against a very well-armed ISIS terrorist, really brought the little city into prominence. But we found that after Kobani was liberated on January 2015, that the city was destroyed up to 80%. It was basically absolutely in ruins. Um, so the thing with this was that uh, this resistance against ISIS didn't occur in isolation. There's actually a whole ideology behind it, which is called the Rojava Revolution. Mm-hmm. And this ideology is based on this concept of democratic confederalism. And democratic confederalism was developed by a, one of the Kurdish leaders. Um, his name is Abdullah Ozalan, and mm-hmm. he's actually been uh, imprisoned by the Turkish state for some of his views and for the fact that he has been engaging and attempting to encourage Kurdish liberation um, and Kurdish independence. 
So this concept of democratic confederalism was very important for us when we established the Kobani Reconstruction Board. In fact, um, Kobani was liberated on the 26th of January 2015, and on the 29th of January 2015, we established the Kobani Reconstruction Board. And initially what we did was we brought um, Kurdish activists, um, different political parties, uh, feminist groups, um, unions, uh, teachers groups, uh, all kinds of civil society groups and organizations came together from the, all four parts of Kurdistan. And uh, we held a meeting in the city of Ahmed, which is also called Diyarbakir, um, in northern Kurdistan, in the uh, Kurdish part of Turkey. Uh, and so we started this conversation about how we could engage in the rebuilding, because as I mentioned, the rebuilding, the city was just completely in ruins. Um, and it was actually suggested to us by many experts um, that we should actually just get up, um, move a few kilometers you know, south or move a few kilometers west mm-hmm. and actually rebuild a whole new city. But we were extremely determined to rebuild the city because um, it not only was it a site of historical resistance, um, but it was also a site where many young men and many young women died fighting for freedom, for the democratic ideals that are held uh, and underpinned by this concept of democratic confederalism. So we started to engage in the rebuilding, and we've actually managed significant amount of successes in this process. So um, I, I don't know if you want me to. No, yeah, <laughs> no that's fine. Um, so I'll, I'll quickly just back up a bit um, on democratic yep. confederalism. Um, yes. I was reading an article. Um, it, it was an interview with Riza Altun. Am I saying that right? Um, yes, yes. Who is the head of foreign relations um, for the Kurdish party. Um, yep. And he was saying something about the reason why they're so... Um, adamant to keep fighting and keep going is because of this democratic confederalism. I just want to sort of um, clear out what what it is. Um, In his words, he was saying that um, what what they want and what they're fighting for is um, this democratic confederalism, which which includes respecting ethnic, religious and sectarian pluralism. Because yep. at the moment, uh, with w- what ISIS is doing, they're pretty much um, targeting any um, community or any group that, that have differing religions or yes. different yeah. um, ethnicities to them. Yes, definitely. So this concept of democratic confederalism has three core ideas. Mm-hmm. The first main idea is this concept of multiculturalism, mm-hmm. that all different ethnic and religious groups can live together and coexist peacefully with one another. Now, this is in direct contrast to the fact that many of the states in the Middle East are actually artificial states, the mm-hmm. artificial constructs imposed by uh, British or French uh, or American, basically, imperialism and so neocolonialism. After World, after World War One. Yes, right? yeah. yes. After World War One, many mm-hmm. of the countries were formed, and they were basically formed because somebody in France uh, mm-hmm. or somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just basically drew lines on maps. Now, this has caused significant internal conflict and strife for many of these countries within the Middle East because there are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders, such as the Kurdish people, for instance. Mm-hmm. And this has caused a significant amount of conflict because the countries that we have been divided under, such as Iran, Turkey, Syria and Iraq, have been very violent in attempting to assimilate us into either um, Arab culture, into Iranian culture, or into Turkish culture. Mm. Now, naturally, when you force people to assimilate to a particular identity, they resist, and this mm-hmm. has caused uh, the Kurdish movement to rise and attempt to liberate itself. Now, one thing we look, realize is that in the beginning, the Kurdish movement was nationalistic. Mm-hmm. What it was attempting to do was establish its own nation state, similar to a Turkish state or an Iranian state or um, Syria, for instance. Mm-hmm. But what we realized as a result of the establishment of democratic confederalism through Abdullah Ocalan's ideology was that 
if we were to establish a state, we would inevitably reproduce the same violent practices, yeah. the same violent ideologies toward different ethnic and religious minorities and groups, which would inevitably fall into the territories that we are claiming to be Kurdistan. And uh, Abdullah Ardalan argues that we do not want to reproduce same violences towards minorities as we as Kurdish people have been subjected to. Yeah. So in order for us to resist this, we have come to reject not all Kurdish um, you know, communities have accepted this naturally, because mm. the idea of a national of having a state is, is still a very, very alluring concept. Yeah, it's very dear to um, some people's hearts, isn't it, to have a state? Yes, yes. Yep, yep, definitely. Um, but however, a majority in the in the Rojava region, which is the North Syria area, and the uh, Kurdish parts of Turkey have come to accept this concept of democratic confederalism. Mm-hmm. So instead of aiming to establish a state, what we are aiming to do is establish communes and cooperatives and community councils, basically on the street level, on the uh, neighborhood level, mm-hmm. and basically just goes up, which is basically a form of uh, grassroots democratization of, of society. So one of the major pillars is, as I mentioned, is uh, this concept of multiculturalism, that we are not interested in reproducing the same violent territorial resource-based violences towards other ethnic and religious communities. Now, what that has meant in Rojava, in in a place such as Kobani, for instance, is a lot of um, rehabilitation, a a lot of um, addressing past injustices, speaking Mm -hmm. with different communities, a lot of councils, a lot of dialogue and discussion between different ethnic and religious groups. The second pillar of democratic confederalism is uh, feminism, basically Mm -hmm. gender equality. Um, I was actually in Kobani um, since uh, October last year until uh, about two months ago, and I basically spent eight, nine months in Kobani on the ground helping with the rebuilding. And one of the most prominent aspects of democratic confederalism that I witnessed myself was this attempt towards gender equality within society. There are many different civil society, women's civil society groups and organizations who are basically going around speaking to to families, speaking to different communities, speaking to the villages, to the communes, to the local councils, and engaging in this discussion about uh, true gender equality. Now, this process isn't an easy process. It's very, very difficult because, you know, the majority of these places are basically large villages. Mm. They tend to be very feudal. There tends to be a lack of development um, and or education. Uh, And so it's very, very difficult to try to uh, engage in this concept of gender equality for many, many of these communities. But yet there are many successes. And I think these successes, from what I witnessed, came about as a result of the uh, active uh, uh, process of education within society. I've actually participated in some of these educational seminars that the women's organizations were holding. Um, and basically, uh, once a week, uh, the women's organization would hold um, a meeting, and it basically would be a two-hour le- lecture slash discussion about different concepts and topics. That's amazing. I remember one of the mm. yeah one of the lessons that I attended was about what is war, mm. um, and I was just blown away because I, I've been I had been teaching in University of Newcastle mm. for some time, um, and yet I was sitting in Kobani in this basically large village um, in a room full of women. Many of them were 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Many of them were illiterate and did not know, even know how to write their own names, let alone sign their own names. Mm. And yet they were engaging in these complex, you know, difficult intellectual ideological discussions about what is war and what we can do as a community to protect ourselves and what we can do to be more cohesive, what we can do to be more democratic and what we can do to be more multicultural in our respect and our views towards other different um, ethnic and religious groups. But that's exactly and I think where, all I... the, where all the um, information comes from because they've lived through it themselves, you know. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think um, these women's organizations are really at the forefront of the revolution and the forefront of changing society, especially the gender mm. gender relationship. And there are incremental changes happening. Um, initially, uh, about four years ago, before the 2011 um, uh, uprisings against the Assad regime, uh, before that period, there were only four women in all of Kobani who had actually university educations. But since then, many, many women have actually started to breach that sort of public barrier. They are present across different civil society groups. Mm. They are dominating in the canton. Mm. They are present in the municipalities, in the local councils. Um, they're really taking a very, very active, strong uh, you know, stance towards the rebuilding of the community. Um, and it's very, very important to emphasize that this isn't just rhetoric. It's not just, yes, we should have gender equality and so on, but then nothing's actually happening. There's a lot of work happening on the ground by a lot of the different women's organizations and committees, and we are seeing a lot of changes, which is fantastic. I mean, as a Kurdish woman, I'm, <laughs> I'm just absolutely <laughs> I'm proud and blown away and just so, so incredibly beyond proud, I think. Uh, the third pillar of democratic confederalism is ecological sustainability. What this means is that we want the communities to live as organically and as naturally as possible without interference from some of these major corporations, mm. some of this, the imposition of toxic chemicals and materials and so on. I think in my experience, this concept of democratic, uh, sorry, um, ecological sustainability was difficult to implement, mm -hmm. mainly because the community was so shattered and so traumatized. We were lacking a lot of materials and basic yeah. supplies that we wanted to rebuild. So we have been struggling in that concept, but we have been trying to implement as much of the ecological aspect as possible. It's very For hard instance, to implement the ecological um, aspect of it when your economy is struggling, isn't it? Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. But also because um, the border from uh, North Syria into Turkey um, in the north, mm -hmm. and then uh, Syria into Iraq. In the west, uh, the borders are basically closed. There's yeah. actually a, a complete closure of the border. And what this means is that there's no humanitarian corridor, no humanitarian supplies and aids are actually flowing into northern Syria. Mm. And this has made the situation extremely, extremely difficult, not only for the rebuilding, Selim, mm. but also for the fact that as a result of the liberation of Manbij, as a result of the conflict in Hasaka, mm. uh, and possibly now with the incursion of Turkey, the violation of Turkey into Syrian uh, territory um, in Jarablus, Thousands of people have been flowing from these cities into into places like Kobani, into the Jazeera Canton, and into Afrin. Now, this has resulted in uh, over almost five million people, not necessarily just these conflicts, but also the the conflict in central and southern parts of Syria with the Assad regime and with ISIS and different terrorist organizations. All of these conflicts have resulted in close to five million people being internally displaced. Mm. Many are flowing through northern Syria, through the Rojava region. And some are flowing into Turkey, into Iraq, into Jordan, Lebanon, and then trying to flow out into the Mediterranean yeah. um, Sea and then into, into Europe. Mm. But what, another aspect of this democratic confederalism has been that we want the people to stay. We yeah. want our doctors and nurses and teachers and uh, psychologists and, you know, we want the members of the community. We want the farmers to stay. It's very, very important for, for the people to stay, remain on the ground. Now, this has meant that we have tried to engage in the rebuilding very, very aggressively so that there mm. is basic supplies and materials. One thing that was not really emphasized was that ISIS was deliberately attacking the basic infrastructure and services within these communities. So whenever ISIS goes anywhere, it tries to destroy the schools, mm. water, electricity, uh, roads, uh, municipalities, anything that resembles basically um, so that you can't services. function as a society. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
so that it prevents the normalization of life post-conflict, mm. um, which is why we, we knew that we had a very, very, very large task. Um, I just want to briefly mention some of the successes that we've yes. had. Oh, you were, you're, going that about, lot... you're going to talk about the yeah. example of um, ecological um, uh, frameworks that you have before I interrupted yes. you. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Um, so one of the rules that we implemented was a 40-60% rule, so that if we, mm. we were going to implement, if we were going to rebuild a, a neighborhood or a street, we would have 40% buildings or infrastructure and at least 40, uh, 60% infrastructure and mm. at least 40% greenery. Mm. Um, now, one thing that we found was the way that Kobani was built during the Assad regime was that it was basically deliberately left underdeveloped. What that meant was that public spaces such as parklands, green areas were severely, severely um, underdeveloped or not implemented at all. So one of our struggles has been to find spaces within the city where we can implement these green spaces. Another another aspect that we found which was very difficult was that many of these houses and streets that were built, the actual physical structure of the city was itself very undemocratic. Mm. We found that we had high walls that basically cordoned off neighbors from each other. Mm-hmm. It, it created these high walls that it really closed in, in the, the streets and the alleyways. And we found that this was really not conducive to this concept of democratic confederalism, that we want communities to come together in public spaces, whether they were green areas such as parks or in community halls or areas where they could come together and have discussions and implement their local council meetings and so on. So we really attempted to change the very structure and foundation of the city, which I think in some ways was to change uh, the way that the Assad regime, that the, this, this dictatorial regime had been attempting to structure and maneuver and basically engage in social engineering of the community. Mm. So this the concept of democratic confederalism isn't just a physical thing. It's not just about the rebuilding, the way that walls are built, the, the type of equipment and machinery and supplies that we've used, but changing the very foundation of the way society thinks, lives, behaves, uh, and coordinates uh, with one another. So... I mean, obviously, this process is still ongoing and and it's not finished, but we've managed to, uh, at this stage, rebuild um, up to 10 of the previous 15 schools within Kobani. We've returned up to 40,000 students to the schools. Some of the schools are extremely overloaded. We have sometimes 50 students, 55 students in one classroom, but we are just happy that we have, you know, mm. chairs and tables and pens mm. and, and things that we can supply to the, to the students, including, you, obviously, education. And you are fundraising yep. for the schools right now, aren't you? Yes, I just yes that we are. Quickly. <laughs> yes, we are definitely fundraising. Thanks for <laughs> mentioning that. <laughs> yes. Um, we are definitely fundraising. Um, there are a few different websites that we are using. Mm-hmm. Helpkobani.com is our mm-hmm. official Kobani Reconstruction Board website. Mm-hmm. We also have a Facebook page called Kobani Reconstruction Board on mm-hmm. Facebook, which you can also go to for further information and details about fundraising for this project. Mm-hmm. But I think one of our greatest, actually two greatest successes, Celine, was that um, initially when the international organizations came into Kobani in, in January and February 2015, they told us that uh, it would take up to three years to remove the rubble from the level of because the level of destruction was so colossal it was 80 mm. percent of the city was destroyed we weren't happy with this so we, we um, you know the organizations told us that they would charge us five dollars per ton uh to remove the rubble and it would take them three years and we thought we can't wait for the people to return you know wait for three years yeah, in a state leave. of refugeehood yeah. in, in camps yeah. in horrible conditions yeah. some of them becoming so desperate that they get onto boats yeah. and they don't even get to anywhere else because they drown in seas. Yeah. so we, we said thank you very much we're not interested and we actually managed to remove 2.5 million tons of rubble within a period of six months That's incredible. and this was one of our 
first successes and we were absolutely blown away. We had everyone within the community helping. We had equipment and machinery that came across the border from the Kurdish cities mm. and municipalities in Turkey, which supplied us with all the necessary equipment mm. and sometimes engineers as well. I think our greatest success at this stage, second greatest success, is that the population of Kobani pre-war in 2011 was 400,000 people. Mm-hmm. At this stage, about a year and a half after the liberation of Kobani, we have managed to bring back 320,000 people from the previous 400,000 population. Now, this is a huge, huge success. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of discussions about the refugee issue here yeah. in Australia, yeah. in Europe. <clears throat> and this is one thing I really, really want to emphasize. Mm. We were so successful in bringing back people because not only we had an ideology that we want people to stay in their community, mm. help with the rebuilding, help with the democratization process, and help come back to their own land and mm. property. And this is really important. Many many of, of the refugees and the displaced people do not want to become refugees, yes. do not want to go yep. to um, you know, Europe and, and Australia and so on. So we were very successful because we developed trust between the community, because we demonstrated actively and physically that we could rebuild the community, that people could come back and their children would have access to schooling and to education, to water, to electricity, um, and would actually have some basic services provided to them. Yeah. And this has been the source of our success in why people have returned. It's a combination of the ideology, but also a combination of the fact that we were so so aggressive with the rebuilding. Um, now, in all the three cantons, in Afrin Canton, in Kobani, as well as in Zazira, we have developed internally displaced camps as well, which we are working very hard to support You know, the displaced people mm. that have come to help and support us. But the problem is that the lack of a humanitarian corridor from Turkey into Syria, especially, and Iraq into Syria, is really, really limiting our capacity to support these communities. Is that because um, of the if, bombings that are going on um, from ISIS along that area? No, it actually has nothing to do with that. It ha- it's more of a political issue oh. because there's a huge um, Kurdish minority in Turkey yeah. which are actively resisting against the Turkish state and, and yeah. Erdogan's increasing violence towards the Kurdish people and other minorities such as Alevis and Yazidis and mm-hmm. um, Christian communities in, in Turkey. Yeah. So Turkey is very, very worried that the Kurdish um, gains in, in northern Syria, in Rojava region, mm-hmm. is going to encourage a similar act uh, by the Kurdish people in Turkey. And this has resulted in earlier this week in Turkey invading Syria and basically going into the northern city of Jarablus, yeah. which is uh, basically across all social media, across the news. Yeah, it's just a, it's yeah. a huge, huge problem. So because of this, Turkey does not want success in, in relation to this democratic confederalism. So it has prevented any supplies and materials, including baby formula, blankets, Medicines. shoes, jackets for the kids, for the camps. Yeah. You know, they're not allowing anything to come through. And this has really limited our capacity to support the displaced people and the traumatized people within these communities. This is why I really want to emphasize that a humanitarian corridor is essential and we need anyone who's in support of this concept of democratic confederalism, the Kurdish resistance against ISIS, and what we are trying to do in this egalitarian democratic society in northern Syria is just to really raise awareness about the lack mm-hmm. of a humanitarian corridor and to, to stand in solidarity with us because we need the medicine, we need the supplies, we need the blankets, we need the food and the water to come through so we can help these communities. Is the Australian government in any position, not that they are well known for their humanitarian (laughs) (laughs) directions at all, but are they in any position to put pressure on the Turkish government to lift the embargo on humanitarian Um, aid? 
We have been lobbying, actually, since I've been back from Europe. Mm. I've been lobbying with the Kurdish community in Australia, have been lobbying with uh, the, the government, both the Labour and the, the, the Greens specifically, yeah. to try to raise awareness. We have received some positive responses, but mm-hmm. uh, w- what our interest is at the moment that we can use uh, avenues and pathways in northern Iraq yep. to actually um, bring in some of the humanitarian supplies. Yep. We are not going to hold our breath. We don't think that mm-hmm. really Australia, considering its very, very close relationships and its very close ties to Turkey, despite yep. the fact that there's absolutely no benefit in this relationship for Australia yep. and for the Australian people, um, the con- constant reaffirmation of close ties between Turkey and Australia is extremely baffling to us mm-hmm. as the Kurdish community here, especially because of the PKK movement, yep. which we consider as a liberation and freedom fighter movement mm-hmm. in in northern Kurdistan, in, in Kurdish, Kurdish parts of Turkey, um, which the Australian government considers as a terrorist organization. Now, this is the same movement that went into Shengal Mountain mm-hmm. um, and liberated hundreds and thousands and thousands of people, Yazidi people, who had, who had been trapped on the mountain as ISIS was attacking them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the same people that in, went into Rojava and helped and supported the Yepaga and Yepaja in the liberation of Kobani and other areas. Mm-hmm against ISIS. Uh, it's also very active in north, northern Iraq in the fight against ISIS with the Kurdish Peshmerga groups as well. Um, so this is a liberation movement. The PKK has never been a threat in any way, shape or form to any Western country, mm. especially to Australia. Mm. Its only efforts are within Turkey to try to engage in liberation and active human rights for the Kurdish people, which are facing significant amounts of terrorism from the Turkish government. Um, so we are very, very baffled by the by the Australian government in this regard. We have been lobbying and we are trying to engage in educational processes so that the actual um, the Australian government is actually aware of some of the basic facts, yes. the basic facts of the reality of the Kurdish people, the reality that Kurdish people face in Turkey and the extreme amount of terrorism and violence that they face. It's interesting, um, isn't it? Because when um, when people fight back, when people are are um, targeted and then they fight back, they're labeled terrorists, aren't they? Yes, yes, definitely. But this is what the capitalist imperial system mm. wants. It wants people not to fight back. It wants complacency. Mm. It wants them to be assimilated, thankfully and quietly, yeah. into the systems and the ideologies and the one flag, one identity concept that the capitalist system imposes. But we are not content on doing this. The Kurdish people are here to stay. But more importantly, our, our commitment to democratic confederalism is our guiding light. It's our guiding ideology. And we are committed because we believe that irrespective of your ethnicity, of your culture, of your religion, whether you're Arab, you're Turkmen, you're Kurdish, you're Persian, whether you're Assyrian or Armenian, whether you're Christian, whether you're uh, Yazidi, whether you're you know, Jewish or Muslim or Sunni or Shiite, it doesn't matter. We can live peacefully with one another. We can decolonize our minds. We can decolonize our societies. And we can engage in a new form of societal reconstruction and rebuilding where true democratic processes, true gender liberation, and true gen- um, uh, ecological sustainability is an actual lived reality of our communities and our, and our basically process of coexistence with one another. That is a fantastic note to end this amazing interview. Thank you. Thank you, you you've been you've been such a fantastic speaker, and I wish we could speak for a whole hour. You seem like you have so much <laughs> knowledge you, to share. <laughs> Thank um, you. If, if anyone wants to find out more, uh, the, the, can they just Google um, the the Kobani Reconstruction Board and all the yep. Facebook pages, and you know, yep. learn more about what's going on. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Celine. It's been a pleasure having just speaking to you. Thank you yes, so much for the opportunity. Good luck with all your work and good thank luck you. With it. Thank, thank you. Um, so we've been speaking. That that was Haojin Aziz, a former University of Newcastle academic and now a central figure on the Kobani Reconstruction Board. Um, she's been here in Australia speaking about these topics that you've just been listening to. Um, thank you for joining us this morning on Three um, CRs Refugee Radio. Um, I'm your host Celine Yap, and we'll be going out to a track by Enda Kenny. Um, and this track is called King Street.